You are now listening to Out of the Blank. Boom, I'm here with Kyler. Am I saying that properly? Kyler? Yeah. Kyler Saunders. All right. So where are you from exactly, Kyler? I live in St. George, Utah. Um, so it's kind of over by just uh, like six hours away or two hours away from Vegas. Now, is that so? Okay. Um, what do you do professionally there? Um, I work technically as a certified fitter of therapeutic shoes. A, a, a what? <laughs> a certified like so you fit people for shoes for that are recovering from something uh, yeah uh, a lot with like custom orthotics and shoe modifications and diabetic footwear and stuff like that diabetic footwear like someone that's lost a foot uh yeah that can be a case or a lot of uh diabetics have neuropathy which is basically just um deteriorating nerves in the extremities and so they can't necessarily feel their feet so they oh can't tell goodness. if there's something under their foot or in their shoe or if their shoe is too tight they can't tell and how'd that can you, how, well how'd you get into that in the first place like that's a very exclusive <laughs> and very weird job <laughs> yeah um i moved down here about five years ago and i used to work for Foot Locker. and so when i was just looking for a job i was like oh, look, a shoe store. I can do that. I've been doing shoes for a little bit. So I went and applied and I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Now, do you have a fascination with feet? Because a lot of people are very <laughs> turned off by feet, but I found there's a small group that uh, finds it exceptionally attracting to be. Um, and people have definitely asked me that. It's not like a turn on, but they also don't gross me out necessarily. So, <laughs> so you're like, screw it. Someone's got to have the job. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not terrible. Is there anything down the line that you want to be pursuing or do you just going to kind of stay in footwear? Like, do you have any ideas for shoes? Um, I am, I currently just graduated high or college with my bachelor's in exercise science and I'm taking a year off and then planning to go get my doctorate in physical therapy. Oh, so you have a passion for helping others and overcome like either tragedies or just try and better their lives. Definitely. Yeah. And this really connects to it because footwear and arch supports and stuff like that can really help people improve and eliminate pain anywhere from, you know, the foot to the base of the neck, pretty much. I think people don't even understand how important it is to have the proper shoe wear when you do go to the gym. Like for the longest, like my first two years of going to the gym, I was wearing Vans, man. Like I was running in Vans, like the flat ones too. And I have a low arch to my heel. So like, I have to wear like special padding apparently. Uh -huh. And I can tell now, like as I'm getting older, like I could see where that padding, the Dr. Scholl's stuff should be helping out. Just giving me that kind of that soft gel for my arch. But dude, running on Vans, man, it's, it was, it was so life changing getting like a, just a pair of Nikes or just a good pair of running shoes. Yeah. that You'll definitely notice a huge difference with that. Or if you switch from even just like a running shoe to a lifting shoe, you'll notice a huge improvement in some of your lifts and stuff like that. Um, and you know, most of the population is wearing shoes that are too small for their feet. And you may not have problems with that now or next week or next month, but it could be years down the line and you'll start having major issues to where, um, you know, you'll develop bunions or hammer toes. And these are things that can 
completely change how you walk and cause you significant pain all of the time. Yeah, you're supposed to be working out in something comfortable so you're able to do that or you're able to like because I mean a lot of people look at going to the gym as like the biggest worst thing in the world. And I'm like, it's not going to make it any easier if you're not wearing a shoe that's comfortable. Like if you wear those Chinese shoes, those women wear where their feet are all crunched together and everything like that. And then when they take out their foot, it's all deformed and everything of the sort. Like, I, like I, I, all right. So I'm not fascinated by feet. I'm actually disgusted by feet. But the whole idea, like heels, high heels, they're attractive, but they're not they're not, I don't think a woman should have to wear them just because they're very uncomfortable. Yeah. There's, I mean, to a point that's correct. There's definitely heels out there that can be made comfortable and made good fitting. And that's kind of the more higher end women's dress shoes, but it's when you get into like the stilettos and you know, the real thin pinpoint heels that that really comes a problem or like the pointed toes and stuff like that that stuff's going to cause you more issues than it's worth. Yeah. I think it's more like when you start looking at a shoe as for more of aesthetic appeal and not looking at it anymore for just like something to help cover up your feet. I think you're losing the basis of what a shoe is supposed to represent. Like my cousin, for example, goes to Nike, goes to Foot Locker, goes to wherever and buys shoes like 10 pairs. And then they're all just stocked up in his closet in a box. I'm like, what was the point? Um, you'd probably hate me. I've got about 80 pairs sitting in my closet right now and half of them haven't even been opened. You're one of those. I, am. <laughs> I mean, I like it. I'm like, Oh, it looks awesome. I'd love to have that shoe. But once I stop, like I've, I'll wear the same pair of vans every single day until they're, they're not a shoe anymore until it's like just a base sole. But I, it's not, it's just, I don't see to funnel my money into that. I mean, I can get where people can get addicted to buying shoes and doing that type of sort, but if you're not wearing them, what's the point? Yeah, it, it kind of depends on the person. We're kind of getting more out of the realm of, you know, that supportive shoes and what you should be wearing. But I mean, there's shoes that are out there that are collectible. Like I bought these um, as kind of like an investment. Like I've been selling some pairs now and I just sold a pair for $1,300. What? And you know, you pay 190 250 for them. Was it Supreme? Was it a Supreme shoe? No, it was a Jordan shoe. Oh my God. What well, I don't understand why people is going to, I'm not making fun of anybody that does that, but like, don't you see, like I, I had to convince my cousin. Okay. I had a personal experience. Me and my cousin, we're in Hawaii. Right. First thing he wants to do apparently in Hawaii and just like in California, they get everything before the East coast does like, I mean, months in advance. So I bought a pair of shorts in Hawaii and they didn't come here in a, like into Maryland until like six months later. I had it before everyone else. So I felt pretty awesome. But my cousin bought a pair of shoes for 300 something dollars down there. And then I, he's walk, we're walking down the street. I'm like, I can't believe it, dude. Like I was making fun of him the whole time. Eventually we got back to the hotel room after like an hour or so. And he decided like everyone was making fun of him about buying $300 pair of shoes. And he went and returned the shoes and they gave him only half price back. Like they're like, here you go. Here's 150 out of the 300 you spent. And I told him, I was like, you got to understand where your limits got to go with stuff. Like, I don't believe you should funnel a grand and a half into money. I'm, I'm happy the people that have money that can do that. But for me, even if I had a million dollars, I'd still be only just 
spending enough to survive on basic necessities. I, I mean, yeah, we all like to go spend money on ourselves, but I think the idea is how far can you get addicted to something? Like, is it a dopamine response that you receive from getting a good shoe? Um, yeah. Uh, I, like I said, I mostly bought them as a collector to eventually sell them. So I, when I was working in Foot Locker, you kind of learn what shoes are probably going to be worth a lot of money, what shoes you know for sure are going to be worth a lot of money. And then, you know, I have no problem holding on to them for seven years in my closet. And then, you know, I can turn it around and quadruple my money or more than that even. See, that's reasonable because you're thinking at it as a marketing standpoint. Yeah. My cousin won't sell any of his shoes. He just keeps them in the closet in a box that's stacked up. He has a closet probably the size of maybe the height of a refrigerator and goes back probably like four refrigerators. And they're all just shoe boxes. I'm like, what is going on? on that's almost getting into the realm of hoarding it sounds like dude yes yes which is a totally different mental issue i i think like he goes you can tell a lot by a person by what they wear on their feet and like he's always before he looks up at a person's face and does the common thing what a guy does but looking up at a girl's chest first and then her face he looks down at their feet first and judges their shoe like look at that shoe I'm like, he's like, dude, that guy's got crappy pairs of shoes, but he can distinctly tell if one's a knockoff or not where I'm like, dude, how do you know if it's a knockoff? He's like, bro, that's not, that's not real. I'm like, what? Like, are my vans real? It starts making me question life again. Like, Mm -hmm. and I I just, it fascinates me. I mean, is this something you want to like keep pursuing down, like just doing therapeutic practices with people? Or is this like, do you have your own kind of creation idea that you want to do? Yeah, my my biggest goal is just to own something myself. I don't want to necessarily work for anybody. And I was just talking to my girlfriend about this last night. I feel like there's two different types of people. There's the type of person that's looking for a career that they can really enjoy and they can, you know, do for the rest of their life. And then there's people like me that's like, what can I do to retire the fastest? Oh, so you want to be able to get to the end point, but also be able to relax at a com- like a comfortable age where you can still go out and explore and do stuff in your later years. Yeah, like I definitely want to help people, but at the same time, I'm sitting there and thinking, I don't want to be the kind of guy that has to work till I'm 80 just to survive. So- yeah, a lot of people are comfortable with just surviving. I think the hardest thing nowadays is to break out and do your own thing or start something. Uh, Creativity is lacking a lot just because everything already seems like it's already created. And I mean, how old are you? Like 24, 20, 25, 23. Oh, okay. I was close. Damn. 24. (laughs) Well, um, you know, like you're only two years older than me. And the fact is like creativity is lacking nowadays, man. There's not many kids our age that are trying to be innovators anymore. Just because we look at social media and everything plays on to the point of it's already been created. You can't think you can make your own thing. Yeah, creativity is lacking. It's because everybody's kind of just turning into consumers because there's so much we have access to. I mean, like, I think it's saying like between Twitch and YouTube and stuff like that, there's like six trillion hours worth of entertainment there. And, you know, a lot of it's garbage, but a lot of it's good quality content. There's probably millions of hours that are quality content that you can just sit and watch and then you don't have to create it yourself. You know what I was watching at three o'clock in the morning and I feel like an idiot for saying this, but I was watching a person eat raisin bran. There's there's, elaborate on that. (laughs) There was, there was no point to it. Just, they were just eating raisin bran just in the microphone. 
but you heard the crunch and i swear to god the crunch was like someone was giving me a massage on my brain i was so like kind of getting into that asmr stuff yeah but i was like but not all, just raisin brands you know the dude that eats cereal i would start a podcast on just eating cereal and people would i get millions of views over a conversation can you Today believe we that have frosted flakes and we're gonna take our first bite but i'll be yeah and then start crunching it down and then like yeah. i was like but it's it's so weird how it's like sounds and these types of things that are considered stupid and un, like just like the most ridiculous ideas become something amazing like where they get millions of views they become a top hit and over something that might be considered boring or long or just even a conversation anymore our attention spans need to have quick quick stuff going on every now and again or we just lose we lose focus yeah i back to creativeness like i find your podcast interesting because you don't really have a you don't have a goal with every episode you just mess i messaged you and you're like oh yeah we can just talk yeah. And it's fascinating how far that can take you. I mean, looking at some of your episodes, you start with, you know, for example, shoes, and then we can lead them to like, what's the meaning of life? Or you end up with Bigfoot or spooky, scary stories or something like that. It's very interesting. I love it when people are like, what episode should I listen to for when you said that? I was like, dude, I've tried to find where I've said something and it's, it's lost in the ether. And they're like, what do you mean it's lost in the ether? I'm like, because if I skip two minutes, a minute, five minutes ahead, we missed something. We're on a completely whole different thing. Yeah. Like, I liked how in one of your episodes you talked about uh, you believe everybody has a story and it doesn't matter if you're 16, 21, or 45. Everybody's got something to say. Oh, yeah, dude. You got experiences I want to hear about. Right now you're telling me the story of Kyler Saunders. So you're like, tell me all about it. Tell me what got you interested in uh, designing your own stuff. Where did your creativity happen? I mean, usually they seem to be the strongest people um, that have like the creative like aspiration to obtain anything or just passion and drive seems to have like a really rough beginning. Like for me, you know, I, I, I decided like I needed to change something had to click in my head for me to be able to go out and start doing what I'm doing. And it's, it's hard setting up stuff with people just because, you know, people tend to be a little bit unreliable, but I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt. I tend not to plan anything after my podcast, making sure I have time for however long the conversation wants to go, man, because we can go off on so much stuff. When I see a podcast that's limited to topics, when it's limited to certain scenarios or certain things, you can only go so far with that. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, do you want me to go into my life story a little bit? Is that kind of what you were asking? If you want to. I mean, be as open as you want. Like I said, I don't press or try and pry into anything, but I like to be able to hear you out and hear your experiences and your stories too, if you want to tell them. Yeah, sure. Um, I don't I don't go around saying that I've had the hardest growing up or anything, but I, I definitely think that I had kind of a difficult one. Um, I saw this quote just kind of going towards this and it says maybe you think someone doesn't have a lot on their plate compared to you but maybe their plate is smaller than yours and doesn't have a lot of room to begin with or maybe their plate is paper and their flimsy paper plate can't hold as much as your sturdy ceramic plate can and I think that has a lot to do with just life in general I mean you you may be able to handle a lot more than you know Jim Bob or whatever but you could still be going through the exact same amount of stress I grew up in a family. We didn't have a ton of money. My mom had me when I was 16. So 
you know, just a teenage mom, she's still growing up herself. And then just a few years after that, she had my little brother who's um, severely disabled. And then my little sister who is also severely disabled. And then she had another kid who is, you know, considered normal. But between now and then, both of my other two siblings have passed away. So I've been through this uh, in, in my young life. I've been through the birth and the death of my younger siblings, which I feel like a lot of people don't really get to go through. And even though, you know, these two individuals are severely disabled, they still had very distinct personalities. And just seeing how many lives those two touched was amazing. Yeah, like, well, first of all, what you said before about people's plates being different sizes, you already have a bigger plate than I do of problems. I think we all experience our own problems, but we're, we're given those problems because we have the tools to get past them and overcome them. Like Bruce Lee said, you know, God gave you this road because you were the only one that could walk it. Like, that's true. You know, your problems are your problems. The fact that you don't put out your problems on anybody else and you learn how to handle them on your own, um, you have to flow like water around a rock a little bit. Uh, you can't really put your problems out. Like we've all experienced those wet towel personalities of people putting their problems out on you or just complaining. And that's because they're full. They don't understand a better outlet, I guess you would say, for trying to decipher or uh, fix their own problems in their life. They feel like the only person they can talk to is the random person in the store and just blurt it out at them. Like if, when, when, when we stop being open to people anymore, we lose everything. We lose, and I don't mean open as in like, hey, guess what I did? Uh, no, it's, it's just talking again. Just being able to have a conversation anymore. It seems like conversations are turning into a, a, is a, is a dead thing, it's being left back in history. It seems it's so easier to ignore the person that might need help, that might need to have their story fixed. I talk about a lot with it comes to the world today and society. I don't want it to turn into that type of podcast, but I also realize that when you're having a conversation with somebody, it's the main thing that's on everybody's mind is how people are today and how they feel like they're not being heard or they're not being, you know, focused on anymore, or they're not, they feel like they're just don't count. Like if they left this earth, they wouldn't affect anybody. And it's sad, dude. It's really sad because younger generations are going to keep growing up in this and growing up in this. And then later it's just going to be the normal thing. It's already becoming normal. I don't want it to be normal. Yeah. And you know, the only way to grow is how you react to the world around you. You can't increase your, the uh, stability of your plate or grow the size of your plate without, if you react to and recoil from everything that comes near you. You've got to find ways to adapt and you've got to be that person that can listen to other people's problems and be able to assist them if they come to you for that. Do you, you find know, we're all we're all human. We're here to help each other. We're not here to be here by ourselves. We're a, as a race together. We're here to work with each other. Do you think that's going to be lost later in life? I feel like a lot of people are going to, like that's just going to be not a part of human nature anymore even though we totally don't realize that human nature we need to communicate with one another we need to work together we have a passion inside of us something in our human nature that cares for one another but nobody wants to look at that anymore it's getting glossed over 
Yeah, I feel like that is going away even now. I mean, you look at some of the younger generation and they're so plugged into technology and, you know, their their phones or their iPads or whatever. They're not, they kind of lack those social skills to interact with people face to face. I find it really weird that the fact that if me and you got stuck on an island for two weeks before help could come, no food or anything, you know how long it would take before we decide to eat each other? <laughs> probably not that long i mean seven days yeah. seven days but that human nature characteristic of people caring for one another it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna last seven days of no food we're gonna prioritize all right we need to try and survive together we need to find a way we need to do these things and then eventually it's gonna be like what can i eat off you for survival hopefully you're not bashing me in the head with a rock but the whole fact is like we would try and manage and work out a way that we can both benefit and both survive. But that only happens when you're placed in an extreme scenario. And I use an island or something of that sort as, as a joking way of trying to get it, the message out there. Because it seems like every time everyone comes together, race doesn't become a thing. Food doesn't become a thing. Anything is just is completely out of out of reach anymore is when it's a terroristic attack or a major tragedy to the world where everyone comes together and tries to help one another to fix what happened. Yeah. How many people can say or tell you about the last time they went and just connected with the earth? Like not in this, like in the sense that you just go outside and interact with, you know, mother nature and get your feet in the dirt and everything. There's, there's not a lot of that anymore. I mean, we've got these big metropolitan cities where, you know, it's all hard concrete and, you know, you just go to your nine to five job and you come home, but there's no sense of connecting to that, you know, that primal side of humanity. Do you believe humans came from apes? I believe, yes, in, in short, yes. I believe that um, everything had to come from somewhere and there is proof of evolution in everything. You know, everything changes over time. So it may not necessarily that we came from apes as much as we came from a descendant that very closely related to them. I think what lies a lot in human nature is very similar to apes. And that's where I think we might have been a species beside them. I'm not going off on some evolution tangent, but the fact that evolution is real, adaption is real, uh, there's, there's evidence of that. But the fact that like, if you watch an ape, like if you watch an ape now, last time I went to a zoo, the first thing this monkey started doing after he grabbed a teddy bear was he started masturbating right in front of everybody in the front of the zoo. And my grandma was up front recording it with her camera as I'm like, we're going to be watching this like a year from now, all sitting down looking at family videos. And we're just going to be watching a monkey masturbate on TV. And like, she's just sitting there laughing and I'm sitting there like, Oh my God. But I'm like looking at this monkey doing this. I'm like, you know what? He's in a closed environment has nothing to do. That's probably what I would be doing too. If I was that monkey. I'm like, it's in all of us, there's characteristics, there's feature when it comes to nature, nurture, whatever you want to say that you can pick from animals that we have picked up. And I don't know yeah. if that's just because it's been in our environment and we've been around it or if it's in our DNA all coded in there. Yeah. I mean, if you take out social stigma and put yourself in an enclosed room and where you didn't really care about what the outside world was looking at, what would you do? in any situation 
you'd probably just be off doing your own thing, picking your nose, masturbating with a teddy bear. I mean, that would be any human if you just took away social stigma and the fact and knowing that people are watching you. I find it weird that we relate way too much to apes, but the fact that in genetic DNA, a pig is closer to us than monkeys are. Yeah, but I find that very strange as well. And a lot of people don't understand. They're like, that's not true. I'm like, that's the fact that when you get a heart transplant or when you get some type of medical thing that you need a replacement, they go to pig valves first. Yeah, or they're doing that thing now where they can take your DNA and and kind of combine it with a um, developing pig and it'll grow organs that you can then harvest. And since they have your DNA in it, it's more accepted than an organ transplant. What happened? What happened to the world, Kyler? (laughs) Why can't we just die? I mean, it's like some people are born with defective organs. That's where I see a benefit. That's where I see a benefit. But I also see people living to be a thousand years old with a pig's asshole. And I don't like that. I, that's, the, that's the way that the world is going, I feel like. I think between you know, computer AI and augmented body parts and being able to grow organs out of a pig, we're going to get to the point where the human race is you know, thousands of years old. Uh, dude, I'm afraid that's going to be too much robotics, though. But is it your flesh and blood that makes you human or is it your consciousness that makes you human? I Honestly, I chalk it up to what Alex Sickler said when he was talking to his doctor that he preached on a Joe Rogan podcast, was where he says that he believes the soul is not in the heart or chest that everyone says it is. He believes it's in your brain. Yeah. That's because you can replace anything in your body, but once you touch anything in the head, you're, it's, it's, it changes you. It's your whole, everything changes from traumatic brain injuries to whatever you want to say, genetic disorders. There's everything lies down into your brain. I think we don't need to be looking at space anymore. I think we need to start researching more about the brain and what makes it tick and what makes it like, how can we fix a lot of what's wrong with it? So let me ask your opinion. Have you seen the head transplant that they've been trying to Please, God, don't let me dive down another rabbit hole. (laughs) You need to look this up. I think it's based out of China, um, but they are developing a way to connect spinal cords together so that you can theoretically take the head of somebody and attach it to a body of somebody else. What? And so this is, they're trying to do it for people that are paraplegics so they don't have any control of any of their arms or legs or that are experiencing severe organ failure that's not going to happen here for a very long time they have actually been able to succeed and last i looked they were actually trying to get a real human um experiment a, a real human to experiment on see the fact is we just became open to stem cells like yeah. we weren't as open as we were before with stem cell research. We said that was really weird, which you're just taking blank cells and injecting them into something where they adapt to wherever you're injecting them and then focus into that and become part of those cells. I mean, Mel Gibson talked about it. His dad was 93 years old, was basically at the brink of death, and they went somewhere um, in China or something, somewhere, some foreign land to get uh, stem cell injected into him because it wasn't popular here next thing you know his dad's fine everything was like healed he's ready to go and he's now he's chipper than ever like i think 
we're a lot less open to things nowadays because it seemed as morally wrong. But when do we start to push the moral boundaries? You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's, that's where we get into discussion of ethics is, yeah, we have to kind of push that boundary to be able to expand our knowledge and expand our abilities. But it's the ethical side of human nature that's going to kind of limit us. And when do we break that down and who's going to do that? And how are we going to see that person that does it? Are they going to be a pioneer and a hero in the field? Or are they going to be seen as, you know, a corrupt human being? They're going to be seen as Dr. Frankenstein trying to bring dead back to life. Yeah. Or like, you know, it's, it's going to be, it's not going to be in the moment that that person is recognized. It's going to be a hundred years from now when that's common practice that they're seen as a hero. So they practice this head transplant by taking out in the beginning, they took out dogs and monkeys spinal cords fully took it out the full uh-huh. thing. And then they also reattached it back in and they were able to walk again. Mm-hmm. So they got it to work. Why do we test on animals like that though? Cause it's, it, it's more ethically accepted than humans. Because if I just walked in and I'm like, okay, all right, this guy just died. Now I need somebody and I need to cut your head off and now reattach it to the spine. Well, most of our best innovations came from uh, human subjects, just when it comes to people giving their body for science, whether it's cadavers or whether it's someone on the brink of death. Uh, One of the guys, uh, I forgot what his name is, uh, I think it's not John Churchfield. It's something back in the day, but he helped us understand the digestive system because he had been in a accident where he lost, like he had a giant, he was shot in the stomach and like mortally wounded. But what happened was he was shot and it pierced through his stomach lining, went like through him and the bile from his stomach basically cleaned out the wound and also sewed it up. Like the acid from it closed it shut, like soldered it. Hmm. And this was like 19 something. And the, one of the scientists, like you could still see the hole in his stomach, but you can also like see like the food going in and getting processed some, somehow. And he decided to do tests for it. And he was running tests, like not feeding this guy for a couple of days and then feeding him something and seeing what his body was like, watching it. And that's how we know about most of the digestive system today. Like the fact that that's a thing, like a, like a lot of what our stuff comes from is human test subjects, even though monkeys and all these things are an easier way, more ethical way for us to get our message across, or at least be able to try things out before we move up to human trials, human trials, they have to happen because yeah, we need to know what happens to us. The, the difference between what you're talking about and what I'm talking about is that was accidental that was completely accidental so he got shot and then was able to figure it out where you know whoever is doing this head transplant has the idea and so now they're trying to do a proof of concept before they move on well the guy the the guy got shot and he was like hey um he was already healed it was a couple years later and was like i'm going to donate myself to this guy's experiments like somebody just put an ad in a newspaper Next thing you know, oh, he's, he's being experimented okay. on that way. But he, he even talks about it. He was like, I didn't know fully what I was going into. I had no idea. I had no clue. The guy tortured me, basically. Uh, he didn't think it was ethically right. But at the ending with all the results, he realized that everything that happened to him. a bigger picture. 
yeah, it was a part of a bigger thing. And now we know so much more from it. I mean, the fact that most of our innovations when it comes to sanitary options and things of this sort come back from 18th century, like this all comes back from, you know, the Black Plague, uh, all these types of things. Like hospitals were seen as a place you'd go and die. Like, mm-hmm. nope, that's why doctors did house calls because hospitals they didn't know about sanitary conditions there those people were robert um liston and joseph lister the guys that basically revolutionized the medical industry with elliot Mueller, um who did a lot of with plastic surgery uh it's these guys were innovators that helped um people be open to and they didn't even have the full picture themselves they were just washing off their utensils they were like well this thing's covered in blood i'm gonna wash it off and they were seen as innovators for doing that most people would just, hey, I'm going to go right back into another surgery without washing my tools. Next thing you know, that dude dies of the contaminations because the guy before him had AIDS or Ebola. Yeah. It's, it'll, it'll be really fascinating to see in the next you know, 10 to 50 years where this kind of stuff goes because we do have those common practices now of cleaning things and everything. And now we can, now that we have the basis of, all of this medical stuff, it'll be interesting to see what we can reach and what we can achieve. But yeah, it's definitely going to have to come down to testing humans and proving the fact that it works on humans before anything else. I find it weird that we always make justifications and claims that this is what it is and there's nothing that can change it. And then like not even 10 years later, there's something completely different that says, oh, that was wrong. Here's something newer. Like, I think that's, a problem with technology nowadays, it gives everyone a resource option to look up when they're sick. And then you go onto WebMD and just because you haven't pooped in eight hours, that means you have stomach cancer. Like <laughs> WebMD is the worst thing. It creates a world of hypochondriacs. I think mental illness and these types of mental disorders, like um, what is the hypochondriacs is people that always get tested for everything, even though there's no way they could have it if they've never traveled outside the U S which they haven't, but they're like, we're going to run it anyway. I think it, it creates, more of a market for the medical industry, but it also it's creating a detriment to society because having that option of being able to look up symptoms and getting what the most common thing is or common disease that has that. I think it's turning everybody into a hypochondriac where people are just going to be willing to sign up for uh, getting a new uh, treatment, getting a new drug implanted in them. And it's, it's going to create more of a doped up society. Yeah. The internet is an amazing gift, but it's also a, crazy curse as well because you do have access to everything the good and the bad do you think it's going to be more of a problem or do you think it's going to help innovation with uh science and all this stuff a little bit more depends who gets a hold of it Uh, if well educated people are the ones having access to it it's going to cause innovation and change but you know if it's just if it's somebody who's content with what they're doing they're not well-educated and now they're just trying to solve their own problems it's going to cause a world of pro a a worse form of problems you know what i find really weird is when i've podcasted with uh pharmacologists and people that deal in the medical industry they always talk about they don't like what the medical industry is doing they seem they said there's a lot of sketchy stuff to it i'm like what do you mean sketchy stuff and they go the fact that I'm pretty sure there's a cure for cancer. I'm like, what? And they're like, you got to think. That cure is never going to be released because they make more money off of cancer treatment in general. If they just could cure it, they're going to lose so much money in the long run. I'm like, that's true. 
Like yeah. the fact that people in the medical industry are thinking about that too. And the world is corrupt and there's corrupt people in every aspect. I mean, go and talk to your doctor and ask your doctor how many of his or her classmates would they recommend you go and see. I've met several doctors and physical therapists and everything that are like, there were 25 people in my graduating class. I'd maybe tell you to go to two or three of them because the other 22 people cheated on all of their exams or don't really care or they're only in it for the money. Now, I've talked to my buddy who's an emergency nurse specialist, uh, the ones that deal with like the incidents as soon as they come in. And he says there's going to be the lowest number of doctors in the year 2020 than there's ever been in the world, like ever, and, and throughout history. That's because nobody's signing up to be a doctor anymore, from legality issues to overworking to these types of things. Doctors usually have six to seven patients at a time on one of their shifts, and now it's being upwards to 10 to 11. Uh, conditions are not fit anymore. They're completely understaffed. And he's talking about these problems. And I've, I've, I know him personally, and I can tell you, he's not the type that's going to abuse treatment or just write off a dosage slip to somebody and not truly care about them. But a lot of them are. A lot of them are. And he talks yeah, about it too. And the fact that it's so hard for him to find a stable job now because it's hard to get with his bachelor's and with his, no, his master's degree, I'm sorry, in uh, nursing. Uh, and he can't even get really a job anymore. He's still applying to different hospitals, but everyone's like, we don't have the funding. We don't have the funding. We don't have the funding, even though they need people. Like, it's ridiculous. People that are actually going to take the time, much like yourself, where you had a personal thing happen to you. That That's why you want to help people. You know that, right? Like, that's that's evidence. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Your your past has, you know, being seeing your loved ones, no offense, or not, it's not offense, but I don't want you to take this like I'm attacking you or anything, but you saw your loved ones get hurt. You know, you saw them pass on. You were there, like you said, birth and death. That's a lot for anybody to go through, but it humbled you to a point where you're like, I'm going to care about people. I'm A lot of people don't experience that ever, and they grow up to not care about one another anymore. And I think more people like that is really common in the medical industry. Doctors that actually take the time nowadays, that should be a requirement that you've had to experience being humbled at least, not in death in the family, but just humbleness, understanding people. You should have to have a certain amount of time communicating with random people. You shouldn't just be able to walk off off the street and think a bunch of book smarts is going to get you somewhere. Yeah, that's beneficial. But at the same time, you have to be able to not just write off somebody with a prescription and tell them, there you go, and then let them walk away. No, you have to sit there and you have to try and uncover maybe there's a better route around this, you know? I, yeah, I, there's definitely hurdles that have to be going over. I mean, how many times do you go to the doctor or the dentist and you see the actual doctor or the dentist for, you know, 30 seconds to two minutes? They walk in and say, yep, looks good. See you next time. See, I, I used to say like they don't give a shit anymore. And then my buddy who's a, a, the nurse, emergency nurse, he told me his name's Nate. He told me like it's because they have so many clients, man. You got to yeah. understand they don't have time to know anybody anymore. Like that's the main thing that people get mistreated and everything because they don't develop a personal relationship with their patient. You ever heard of the Hoffling, um, uh, the Hoffling experiment? Yeah. 
the one with the 22 nurses and 21 of them prescribed an overdose to their patient just because a authoritative figure told them to, like they knew it was an overdose and that person would die if they took it, but they did it anyway. Yeah. I have heard of that. And there's only that one nurse that was the in, that was the, that was the person that was like, I'm not doing that. That's morally wrong. Just because you're my authoritative person, I can tell you right now, this person will die from that. Like, why is that one person so rare? Because at the end of the day, you know, that's the person that signed your paycheck or that's the person that keeps you in the job or whatever. And even if you go into those situations and you're the patient or, you know, for example, there's people out there that just because the nurse says something, even if they're right, they're going to believe the doctor no matter what, because we hold the doctor so high or anybody, we hold whoever owns the most, uh, education as oh the, yeah dude you walk in with a lab coat I'm already thinking you're like Jesus in a way yeah and then somebody walks in with scrubs and they may know more than the guy in the lab coat but it's because the guy has the lab coat the guy has a plaque saying that he has a doctorate that now they're gonna believe the guy in the lab coat over the guy the nurse and scrubs I think like, yeah, exactly what you said like a doctorate like comparing anything to a doctor doctor is seen as the highest job in our at least in the industry now it's like you have to if you're not a doctor you're not going to be having a sustainable life anymore i'm like even if you're a doctor you're not having a sustainable life anymore you can go to school for nine years and still not get a job yeah nothing's a guarantee anymore the world's a weird market nowadays it is and it's all a lot of people are just in it for money and power as opposed to you know, helping people. How, how many people would sign up to be doctors if they made 50,000 a year? Not too many. I don't think a lot would, but that Everybody may, wants to be billionaires. Yeah. But you know, it, it, the doctor that makes 50,000 a year that sees a hundred patients over the course of 365 days, that's the kind of person that's going to make, you know, your experience more worthwhile. They're going to be more personable. They're going to be in it because they love it, not because it's making them the most money. I think like, I just want enough money to survive. I don't care about buying super nice things. I don't need a billion dollars. I just want enough money to survive. And then on the weekends, chase down Bigfoot. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's, that's the, you know, the more, the, what am I trying to say? The moral that, of the story. Yeah. The moral of the story. That's the big picture. You know, if we can, if we all thought that way, the world would be a better place. I think it's just because too many people are consumed with wanting more nowadays. Yeah. Why, why are you podcasting? Are you in it for the money? Are you in it for the experience? Are you in it for education? You know what? I don't know. I don't want to profit off this. I've been, I've been, you know, brought up, to by a couple of people saying, Hey, you could be doing this, could be doing this. I'll sponsor you, do this, make fit. Now nah, I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm sorry. Cause I know once I even let that in, you're going to want to start changing my program. You're going to start affecting it. Everybody wants to add their little spice to the mix. And I, I my cousin's like, dude, but you could be making this. And he set out a business plan for me. I'm like, I looked at it, crumbled it up, threw it in the trash can. He goes, what do you mean? I'm like, dude, I enjoy it. I, I love it. It's fun talking to people. It's, uh, I, I honestly, I hate it in my everyday life, 
like just walking around, you know, but when I like the podcast and get a person more on one-to-one, I enjoy that a lot more. I don't like situations. I think all people, I say this a lot, uh, all people suck, but we have an aspiration to become great. And I like trying to uncover that greatness, that passion, that drive. That's not even that really deep down inside them. It's just right under the surface. We're just too afraid to show any emotion towards it. Yeah, it'd be cool if I can make money off this and, you know, but the main point of this is affecting somebody, somebody that's going to take maybe an hour, take two hours, whatever, and just listen to it and just get a sense of enjoyment or relaxation or just an escape from the life they're living. Cause yeah. it becomes a little too much sometimes. Yeah. I, uh, me and my buddy started a podcast just so that we can sit down for an hour uninterrupted and just talk with one another, you know, and we started it around video games because that's something that we're both passionate about and we can't, we don't really find time to talk about that any other time. So now we're able once a week to sit down for an hour to two hours and just talk about that and get to know each other a little better. It's, it's kind of nice and relaxing. What's the podcast called? Uh, Gameaholics podcast. Gameaholics. Gameaholics. Now do you narrow it down to a specific game? Uh, yeah, we're on episode three. We just recorded. So it's just starting. Um, but the whole goal is every week we'll kind of talk about what's going on, what we're playing and a, a conversation topic about one thing. We're not going to narrow it down to has to be only, you know, shooters or has to be only Xbox games. It's going to be anything's open uh, up for grabs, but every week we'll focus on one thing. Well, what's your favorite type of game to play? Uh, I've been really into the indie games, just anything created by a small team because it's so interesting how many different types of games there are out there. And, you know, there's games out there that are made by one person. There's games that are out there made by 10 people that are amazing and better than these AAA thousand people team games. Do you find it like, I find my relax, like my favorite types of game are a game that incorporate a little bit of history in it, like Assassin's Creed, that whole base. Yeah, those are cool. I just like seeing people's creativeness come out. Okay, you like seeing what people can aspire to become with just putting their mind to something. Yeah, like my all-time favorite game right now is Hollow Knight. Are you familiar with that one at all? I've seen it, but I have not played it. Okay, it's made by three people, and it's uh, I've probably put more time into that game than some of these AAA games altogether. And it's just this, you know, little 2D platforming game, but the artwork is fascinating and like the how in-depth the story is and everything. And you can really tell that these people are passionate. It was a Kickstarter game that blew its goal out of the water. And they were like, oh yeah, if we reach this tier, we'll put this in. And if we reach this tier, we'll add another character. And instead of reaching those tiers they blew their goal out of the water and they didn't quite reach some of the goals but they took the time and still put those goals in and then they were supposed to add another playable character and instead of doing that you know a dlc where it adds the character they're now making an entire game and the people that backed it originally are going to get that game for free see i like stuff that can incorporate to people's interests, which I do find a fascination with video games. I also think it's a problem that people are becoming too reliant on video games to give them that dopamine response, just because you got to think the world's kind of crappy just because we all treat it like crap and we all choose to make it like crap. I think we should make it a lot better, 
but people are more going like adults are now playing video games more often. It's not seen as a child thing anymore. And that's just because of the places it can take you. It's escape from reality, you know, much like a book or a movie. It can also become a job now, which is, they're putting it in the Olympics, bro. They're putting in the Olympics. You, did you hear about the 16 year old kid that just won $3 million playing Fortnite? Yes. Stop. I've never played Fortnite. I don't ever want to dive into that realm because I know (laughs) it's going to take hold of me hard. You know what I just bought recently and I've been kind of like, I've been slacking on a little bit just because I've been podcasting World of Warcraft. All right. I, I haven't played it in years. I picked it up and I'm like, why did I ever stop? Like next thing I know it's nine hours later and I look outside, it's dark. I'm like, whoa, but I, I I'm like, I don't want a podcast. I want to play world of Warcraft and then I'm playing world of Warcraft. And I'm like, well, what am I doing? Get up podcast, man. Like, yeah, Podcasting's fun. You know, the, on the development team for most of these big video games, there's actual psychologists that are there to help make the games addictive. They're, they're specifically designed to reach those centers of your brain that form makes video games addictive. They want to know what the trend is. They want to know how to capture their audience. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, they bring in these psychologists so that they know exactly, like, what if we tweaked this? This would cause, you know, a little bit of pleasure here. And then, you know, you add that pleasure to every aspect of the game. And now you're getting that dopamine rush every time you boot it up. I think the fact is like we're looking for we're, the society's becoming like with that intention span getting a little short. People are looking for something that is constantly moving around, constantly something that they can control and change at the immediate response. Yeah, that's that's the whole kind of story that video games are going into. They're starting to do those uh, like Game Pass for Xbox. You have access to like 200 games at any time. You can just turn it off and turn on another game and you can just boom, 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 jump between games. And then they're going to start coming out with these cloud streaming services, which is going to be like Netflix for video games. So then you'll just be able to hop in and out of games without downloading anything. It's going to make our attention spans even worse. So I'd like to take everything that I talk about and look at it from both perspectives. I see the addiction with video games, okay? I've witnessed the guy who's 40 years old going to Walmart with uh, buying 48 cans of Mountain Dew, 10 two liters of Mountain Dew, bags and bags of Doritos wearing a freaking Minecraft t-shirt. I know those people. I'm friends with those people. I see those people. I don't judge those people because I'm looking at them. I'm like, they're going to have a good fucking night. Like they got their, they got their day set. They're ready. And they're just going to go home and game. And if that's what you want to do, you should be able to do that because society, the world pushes a lot of problems on us that we don't know how to handle. So video games is a good outlet for it. But also going to school for psychology and learning a little bit about some a little bit about the mental at least mental and physical health a little bit so there's some psychological problems with video games the fact that a lot of people that are addicted to video games nowadays also struggle with issues such as like depression low self-esteem definitely high stress levels um i i've experienced that on my own just video games just pissing me off to a point i'm like why am i getting upset about this i mean i remember being a kid not being able to beat a level on Spyro and getting so upset, I'd have to take a nap. Like my mom would be like, it's nap time. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I was very little at the time, but still that's there. Like people, they do upset a lot of people. Even nowadays you can watch a kid freak out over something. You can uh, just over a video game and the dad's like, I'm going to break the television. The kid's like, don't you dare. It's like, but let me tell you something. I, I bought Spyro when it just got, uh, 
what is it? They just remade. Uh, yeah, remade. I beat the level I was stuck on when I was a kid that I never got past. That took me. I mean, I just never beat it. I just, I just nap time, Robbie. Oh shit! And <laughs> it, that was it because I get so upset it would take me forever. I beat that now at my age now in five minutes, bro. I went downstairs, told, asked my mom. I said, "Was I mentally retarded as a kid?" <laughs> she said, "What do you mean?" I said, "I just beat." this game and i explained to her like how hard it was for me as a kid and how i just did it and with ease now and she goes no your brain has developed i was like okay you, you convinced me all right i'm older now i got a little bit more experience in me okay went back upstairs played the next level that i never even think about i beat that in 10 minutes i came back downstairs i'm like don't lie to me i was retarded you know it <laughs> she's like there might have been something there but no it's it's the fact like your brain develops and handles situations but the fact that it can release such emotions with you like a lot of people don't recognize the problems with excessive gaming like i grew up not having being close to anybody just because of the fact my parents worked all the time and my brother was older than me so there was a gap in years so i bonded with my xbox i became addicted to it to the point where i was playing it every day it was it was a way i can connect with my friends now and have fun with them it took off most of my childhood years doing video games and i would get upset when i would get my threatened they take away my xbox they would think of what is addicted to it i'd get upset like crying screaming freaking out and i look back at those i'm not embarrassed of those moments because i realize how addictive they can become people don't realize when they start looking into gaming and start excessively gaming it's meant to release some stress but when you become addicted to it to where you play it religiously and nothing else matters but your video games you stop feeding yourself you stop showering you stop doing these types of things that's when it becomes a problem exactly and that's the case with any addiction it's when it starts impeding your life and maybe even the life of people close to you that there's problems there's nothing wrong with playing video games or smoking weed or drinking it's when it becomes you know so you become so dependent on it. That's the issue. Yeah, you can't. Well, everything is okay in moderation. The fact that other things have a limit to what you can take of it. Alcohol, for example, you will black out. It's your body literally telling you, we're done. Sorry, no more alcohol for you. I'm shutting down the brain and I'll leave the penis on maybe for 10 minutes, but you're, you're done. Sorry, bro. It's, it's nap time, Robbie. Yeah, it's nap time. That's what my brain says to me. Yep, exactly. And it's, it's, it's true, though. We've all experienced getting frustrated. My whole family is musicians. You can't tell me you've never played a video game, especially when you were a kid like I was, and get super, super upset over it. Yeah, like, it take, happens. Take it to heart. I'm, I'm basically asking for a personal experience just so I don't look like a complete jackass. But Oh, like and take any Call of Duty game. You know, you're going to have a, you're going to have any, or just any competitive online game. You're going to have moments where you get frustrated beyond belief because there's somebody on the other team better than you. Why and, is, oh no, it's my, it's my controller. My controller is bad. I was, I was, you know, it, it was causing me to go to the one side and you're stumbling over your words because you're just so upset. And it doesn't help when some guy on the other end's calling you a piece of shit and making fun of your mom. And you're just sitting there already upset about the, losing the game. And they're sitting there you, making fun yeah. Your teammate's going to be on the mic being like, you fucking suck. You can't do that. Blah, blah, blah. It's like the same thing with sports. Now they just give you participation trophies. Nobody's a winner. Every, I mean, nobody's a winner. Nobody's a loser. Everybody wins or whatever. And I'm like, there's a clear and definite winner. That team scored 42 points. We only scored two. 
we got our ass handed to us. Yeah. What, what's your opinion on that? Uh, do you think that that's going to affect these, you know, generations growing up that are just getting participation trophies and everything? I think there's a limit on when it, you should be doing that. I think in small, small, small games, we should encourage points, but accept that losers are okay too. We're not doing that. We're, we're su- suggesting that there's neither a winner or a loser when there's a clear, definite winner and there's a clear, definite loser. You need to know you lost the game, but you can work harder next time to win it. But you're still going to get something out of this like still kind of reward them, but not encourage losing. Yeah. You, kids are most impressionable of any you know, age is when they're young. And so we need to teach them when they're young that losing is okay. Not always getting your way is okay. You don't always have to get the trophy at the end of the, the soccer game or whatever. Yeah, you shouldn't be, um, I would say, 15, 16, up, whatever, playing games and getting a participation trophy. You should be a little, little kid, five, six, like when you're just learning how to really get narrowed down your motor skills a little bit, uh, when you're becoming like knowing how to kick better and doing all these types of stories. That should be where, hey, there's no winners or losers, but, you know, everybody gets something here. You know, we're all just here kind of having fun. Those are moments when that happens. But when you become older, when you start getting stuff handed to you, even for losing and start realizing, like, there are no winners and losers when you're older, you need to be humbled in a way. That's where you're losing the humble spot. You need to know that life isn't just going to hand you a prize even when you do something wrong or when you do something like that. That creates incentive for people not to try hard in their life anymore. Yeah, so you don't think that even as little kids, you know, five or six, when you're just starting to develop, that we need to, you know, tell people that there are winners and losers? I think it should be clear that there are winners or losers, but I don't think they should be, like, looked at, like, they don't need to be, like, you know, the coach is like, you fucking lost or something like that. I think it should be more like, yeah, we lost the game, but we can try better and we can get better. I think yeah. that's that's the way to come at it. And yeah, if they want to give them a participation trophy, I'm not going to disagree with that. But I, they need to know that they did lose, but they can. it's not something they needed to dwell on. Yeah, it sucks, but it was about having fun and we can get better next time and we can win. Because you need to know what winning feels like. Winning feels fucking good. Yeah, you know? it does. Losing kind of sucks, but it inspires you to be better. You can't judge a person that wins every single game because they've never experienced a loss. That's why these superstars, these athletes, when they experience a loss, they don't know how to react to it. They're just like freaking out all over the place. People are like, well, that guy's crazy. No, he doesn't know what that's like to lose. He's been given everything already. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to learn more from your mistakes and your losses than you ever are from your successes and your um, winnings. What, what's your opinion on the whole trophy thing? I I think we I don't think there should be participation trophies. Like I said, I think as kids are developing, that's when we need to teach them. You know, it's okay to lose, it's okay to win, or just here to have fun, and all that. And I think teaching them sportsmanship in every aspect, and we need to get coaches that can you know show sportsmanship because that's going to help us grow and make competitive sports even more interesting down the line. Where do you see people going in the future? Do you see it becoming worse where people are just going to be given everything to them instead of having to innovate anymore? 
that's kind of seeming like what the world's going to. I mean, now we're in this realm where you can't, you can't say anything or else it'll trigger or offend somebody. We're raising and idolizing these easily impressionable adults that are going to make easily impressionable children. That's a good point. I'm coming out with that. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, people, the children are like clay, man. I mean, they're practically Play-Doh. So yeah, did you you drop them on their head and next thing you know, their head's flat or (laughs) you can just do something wrong or yell in front of them and they learn how to adapt to that and they start yelling in their life. Yeah. Did you see, I, I can't remember what it was called, but it was a political meeting that just happened like last week and somebody stands up and they call everybody um, comrades or something like that. So they don't refer to anybody as he or she. And one guy stands up and he's like, can we keep the chatter down? Cause I have attention disorder and instead of clapping, let's wave our hands in the air. Okay. Like, I mean, these are I the can understand that, but that's a little too sensitive. Like it's the same guy that always throws in the fact that he has a gluten intolerance. Like that's good for you, bro. I'm going to enjoy this ice cream. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, this is the kind of people that we're, we're idolizing, you know, these are the kind of people that are rising up that, you can't offend anybody. We have to be generic in every topic that we talk about and all of that. And it's, it's going to be really interesting to see where this goes because it is getting, I, I don't know if it's getting necessarily worse as much as it's getting more um, presented. There's just mo- more exposure to it. I don't think people are going to be able to change unless they're open to it or they get a clear picture of what change has to be. Yeah. And it's when you're uncomfortable that you're going to change the most. If you live in your bubble and you live in, you know, your safe, cozy environment for your entire life, you're never going to develop and you're never going to change and you're never going to improve on yourself. We got to do what you possibly can with the tools you're given. You know, you got to make the best of your life as you possibly can with it. You know, you're practically wearing wet clothing all the time. You just have to learn to adapt to your situations, adapt to your scenario, and one day change your life or just hopefully try and change your life every day for the better. Exactly. Like you said earlier, you've just got to flow like water. You've got to be able to adapt to anything that's put in front of you. For sure, man. I mean, it's it's all, it's all about key. We're all here together. We just got to learn to work with one another again i think we lost that i think it's too easy to rely on machines too easy to rely on you know you can't rely on anybody you have to be very dependent that's what you have to do but you cannot be pushed away from people you still need to socially interact you still need to have a form of communication i just don't like that video games are becoming the main incorporation i love like i said assassin's creed the fact is I am a history guy. I like history a lot. I like learning things about history. So that tuned it in a way for me not to read a book, but be able to kind of dive into what's close to what the actual history is, but still fun for me to play where I feel like I'm experiencing it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And if that's your form of entertainment, that is fantastic. You know, there's people that'll spend hours every night sitting in front of the TV just watching you know, whatever's on. 
I just feel like we have a voice and like a lot of people turn to video games as violence is making the world violent. No, it's not. There's only some stuff that's violent in video games. A lot of the times you could just go on Minecraft and if you don't want to kill anything, you just build stuff all the time. My little cousin can build things on Minecraft that blows my freaking mind and then plays Fortnite. And I'm sitting there like, what happened to, uh, like the old stuff where I only had to hit three buttons at once, like Mortal Kombat, where I could just spam the crap out of A and B and kill somebody instead of yeah. And if you know, we're gonna if we're gonna go into the topic of violent video games causes violent people, what about movies? What about TV shows? I mean, there's some movies nowadays that are so bloody and gory and violent. Like that's got to be doing something. If- my notion for it is that humans are naturally violent, and I think that it's becoming more of an influence when video games are particular violent, but it's not a problem unless they're playing it 24 seven. Yeah. And yeah, that goes back to our addiction where it's, if it's, if it's impeding on your life, then it's a problem. Like if it becomes like every single day you're killing people every single day, you're doing this and you're just disconnected from the world you are going to lose everything from family ties to physical health and mental health. And then not even talking about financially, but if you're playing video games constantly like that, that is nothing but violence. You're going to start re- getting violent in your everyday life. You're going to start being like, cause I can act this way in a video game. You don't realize there's a barrier between reality and virtual reality. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I mean, there's tons of research out there saying that there's no, there's no connection. Well, I'm not talking about just video games. I'm not talking about just video games. Yeah. Correlation does not mean causation. There could be a correlation to, you know, violent people playing video games or watching violent movies or anything, but that doesn't cause it. What I think it is, is the fact that people, when you play, let's say you play Call of Duty every single freaking day. Okay. And I'm talking about for 30 years of your life. Then you go out and try and experience the world. You're already technically on edge. You're going to be experiencing on edge because you don't know how to develop or talk or handle social problems anymore. When I think you become addicted to video games, like I said, I'm an advocate for video games. But if I accept the enjoyment of video games, I have to look at it at the negative sides too. That's not just with video games though. That's with movies. That's with everything. There, when, when you're constantly surrounded by violence, whether it's fake, whether it's whatever it is. So I'm not just blaming video games. I'm not blaming video games at all. I'm saying with movies, anything, anything that's violent, even a book, if you're reading that constantly violence, if your environment is violence, hundred percent, you're going to be on high alert when you walk around into everyday life. Cause you don't know how to function or you don't know what that feeling is without violence. Yeah. That and that's definitely correct. Um, interesting that media in general is just kind of going that route. I mean, you can even listen to music and it's talking about shooting people up or rape or anything like that. Well, you know what that is, right? That's um, you ever heard of uh, Mean World Syndrome? No, I haven't. You should look that up. But I podcasted about it. I I used to do a spinoff of my of this podcast called Fill in the Blank, where we narrowed down on specific topics. We talked about Bigfoot. It's more like thirty minute topics that are meant to be fun. Uh, okay. But they focus down on stuff. And I did one on Mean World Syndrome, where it's the fact that elderly people they have their channels locked now on certain things when you go into a nursing home to where they can't change it. You wonder why they watch Bingo. You wonder why they watch 
Price is Right. You wonder why they watch all those little crappy shows where you're like, why are you watching this? And that's because their TV is locked on that because they're sitting in a home with a TV in front of them 24-7. At least every minute they're basically awake because they can't move around it like they used to. They can't go out and just drive around. They're restricted to an environment now. And there's times where they have to go out and experience communication with the others living there. They still have to do that thing. It's mandatory. So their channels are locked because they found the fascination was they would always look at the news. It's common for elderly people and older age generations to pay attention to news, whether it's newspaper, whether it's whatever. They were needed to know what was going on. And it was playing a very bad psychological toll on their mind because the media was always talking about shootings, 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 where people were starting to make older people starting to make justifications and claims on people before they met them. Such like my generation, your generation, they would be seen as just another punk kid when it turns out you're the guy holding the door open for somebody. You're the one saying, please, saying thank you. And people look at you like, what? I didn't expect you to be like that. It's because they're making already justified claims based on media notions. Yeah, the the news is a scary thing. And the fact that we're so connected to everything and every point in the world is kind of scary. I don't necessarily think the world is more violent it's now. Just, it than has it was. a bigger outlet. Yeah, I mean, you can, there can be a shooting in, you know, all the way around the world. And within 30 seconds to a minute, there will be videos and posts about it that anybody can access. There has always been shootings. There has always been rape. There's always been murder. There's always been all these things. And they have never been restricted to a certain race. They've just been, it's been everyone. It's throughout history, okay? But the fact is now we have a way of getting more of that information to us at our fingertips, basically. Before, let's say it took a pigeon. It took a horse, guy on horseback delivering email. Hey, there was a shooting. When did this, oh, this was four days ago. Wow. And then four days later, you get another one. What? This, this was four days ago. It's like the information was a slowed process of getting to you, but now it's so quick. It seems like it's happening more and more, and it's becoming more common. There's always been that there. There's always been that. The world is what you make it. So if you start processing and showing everybody, because that's what gets attention, that's what gets views, then people are going to think the world's just a crappy, shitty place, and they're not going to want to experience it anymore. More people are going to want to stay home in their comfortable environment, thinking that they're not going to get shot in their own house. Yeah. And like, take a look at history. Are we more violent than, you know, the Huns when they were taking over all of Asia? No. I mean, I mean half of the population come from the Mongols. They're all related to like one guy. Yeah, because they would just come through and they would pillage and rape and, you know, murder just about everybody they could get their hands on. Is that more violent than nowadays? I don't know. We don't, I don't think we have enough, you know, documentation in history to be able to tell how bad the violence really was. Yeah, and a lot of people go, well, what about Obama with that airstrike to kill all those people and saying all that type of stuff? I'm like, okay, no president. There shouldn't be a president. Nobody does it right. There shouldn't be one job that controls everybody just for one person. It should be a number of people going in at once. So then you look at that, that media outlet showing that side immediately to you. Then you look at, let's say, Christopher Columbus. What does the history books tell you? Well, he was an amazing explorer that discovered America, brought all these, and it tells you all the good stuff. 
okay, well, did you know Christopher Columbus, Christopher Columbus used to pick up babies and bash them on rocks just to try and get gold from Indians? Did anybody say that in the history books? Nope. Did anybody talk about the other dark stuff he started doing? The other fact that he lied to everybody to bring ships over here to colonize over here, promising gold just so he can get a return home trip, knowing that there was no gold here. Nobody talks about that. Nobody talks about the little secrets in the dark sides of American history or just history in general. Because now we have a better process of information to get that message out there when somebody fucks up. Before, yeah. you had to write it down, and that had to be published, and that took a while. And a lot of stuff that was going to get published was censored. And now everything's open information, kind of. Yeah, and history is written by the winners. Yeah. You know, you, it, There's not any history book really out there that's going to talk about from the perspective of whoever lost. There's not going to, there's just not a lot of that out there. Like I so, said, you have to make your own interpretation on things based on experiences and thoughts and just having conversations with other people to sift through the bullshit in a way you have to uncover things yourself. You're truly never going to be able to say something is real unless you've experienced it yourself. So why don't you get out there and experience it? Yeah. Seeing is believing. Definitely. Well, you know what? It was awesome having you on my podcast, man. It yeah, was, this was a lot of fun. I'm telling you, man, I'll have you back on again soon. And, and let me know if you need anybody for your Gameaholics podcast. I want to give you here a minute at the end to be able to shout out your own podcast so people can follow that. Okay, yeah. Um, you probably know me if you listen to it as Kickler. I have a co-host. His name is Archer. Um, we do a Gameaholics podcast. We post it Sunday nights um, around 6 p.m. Mountain Time. And we have email Twitter and Instagram, all just Gameaholics podcast. And yeah, that's really about it. Well, let me know if you need anybody to guest star on that because I'll be down to talk some video game talk. I can creep into my inner nerd for a little bit. <laughs> Sounds good. And if you ever, you know, need somebody to talk to, this was a lot of fun. And I feel like we click well together. So that's always good. Right on, dude. I appreciate you coming on and being able to talk to me for this time. And um, thanks everybody for listening to Out of the Blank podcast.